I mentioned earlier that I'll be gone for the next few Sundays. And when we're back, the plan is to start looking together at the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. That will be starting on September the 9th. So if you like to read ahead, you won't need to allocate too much time to read 1 Peter. It won't take you very long. But that might be something that you want to do uh, maybe more than once before September the 9th. But this morning, we're finishing the books of Kings. The writer of Kings has led us on a long journey over the last few months, covering around 400 years of history. And it all began, if you can remember, in the last days of King David. Back in 1 Kings chapter 1, David was nearing the end of his life. That's where it started. And on this journey, we've met many different characters, kings, prophets, prostitutes, warriors, widows, servants, civil servants. We've seen some terrible, horrifying things, like mothers eating their own children. And we've seen some beautiful, magnificent things, like the building and the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to finish the story. But as we do that, we need to remind ourselves the journey actually began far, far earlier than the days of King David. It began with a promise to Abraham. God's promise that he would give Abraham's descendants a land of their own and that they would bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. That's where it started. And the story continued as God brought Abraham's descendants eventually out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. The next chapter of the story took place under the leadership of Joshua as he led Abraham's descendants finally into Canaan, the promised land. And that entrance into the land began with a great victory at a place called Jericho. A very famous triumph for God's people. And eventually, when they were in the land, God provided a great king, David. And God promised that a king from David's line would rule over a kingdom that would last forever. And when David's son Solomon came to the throne, it began to look like God's promise was being fulfilled. Under Solomon, the borders of the kingdom were extended. The wealth of the kingdom grew and grew. And Solomon himself showed unparalleled wisdom. The kingdom of Israel had such a reputation that people came from all over the world to pay their respects. It looked like the story that began with Abraham had reached its climax with Solomon. But instead of recording 400 years of glory, most of First and Second Kings has described a mess of disobedience, idolatry, greed, and human pride. For the majority of the time, we've seen Israel defying and disowning the God who gave them everything. And the one question that keeps coming to mind is, how much patience does God have? 
Is he going to let this evil just rumble on forever? But finally, when we came to chapter 17 of 2 Kings, the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians. And the people were taken into exile in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah has carried on for another 117 years. But this morning, we're going to see Judah fall as well. But the writer of Kings isn't just going to give us a record of Judah's fall. He's going to describe it in such a way that we are shown the long story is undone. One by one in this section that we're going to read, the major chapters of Israel's history are unpicked. The glory days of Solomon, the entrance into the promised land under Joshua, the exodus from Egypt under Moses. All of it is undone. And as we watch that, it will cause us to ask the question, what's going to become of God's promises? The promise that Abraham's descendants would bring blessing to all peoples on earth. And the promise that a king from David's line would rule over an everlasting kingdom. Have those promises turned to dust along with the kingdom of Judah? We're going to read from chapter 23, verse 31, to chapter 25, verse 30, so to the end of 2 Kings. I realize it's a big chunk, but these are our last few minutes in Kings, so we'll give it a proper send-off. If you're looking that up in the church Bible, it's page 396 in the, small, the regular print Bibles or page 610 in the large print. And just to mention this, as we're reading, don't worry too much about keeping all the names and events straight in your head because they come pretty thick and fast. It's normally hard enough to keep the name straight in the book of Kings, but in this passage, some people start out with one name and they end up with another name. So don't get distracted by that. Just stick with the overall picture that we're being given here of a once great kingdom being humbled bit by bit, deportation by deportation, until finally there's really nothing left but a wasteland. Just a pile of rubble with a few desperate people picking over it. So let's pick up in chapter 23, verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt. And there he died. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. 
In order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, according to their assessments. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Zebedah, daughter of Pediah. She was from Rumah. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah, in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the wadi of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of El-Nathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as Jehoiakim had done. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. 
the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, and the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and the sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea and the movable stands, which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 18 cubits high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was three cubits high and was decorated with a network of pomegranates and bronze all around. The other pillar with its network were similar. The commander of the guard took as prisoners Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the priest, next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Of those still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting man and five royal advisors. He also took the secretary, who was chief officer, in charge of conscripting the people of the land, and 60 of the conscripts who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them all and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So, Judah went into captivity, away from her land. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to be over the people he had left behind in Judah. When all the army officers and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah as governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, Johanan, son of Kareah, Sariah, son of Tanhumeth, the Netophathite, Jazaniah, the son of the Machathite, and their men. Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. In the seventh month, however, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishamah, who was of royal blood, came with ten men 
and assassinated Gedaliah and also the men of Judah and the Babylonians who were with him at Mizpah. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awel Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. This is God's word. And much of what we have just read doesn't need any explanation. But let's just notice three things this passage emphasizes for us. First, the consequences of sin have come. Last week, we saw King Josiah carrying out an amazing reformation in Judah. It's hard to imagine how a reformation could have been more thorough. He led the nation back to God's word. He led them back to worship according to God's word. And he got rid of the idols with meticulous care. I think it's fair to say Josiah did all that as thoroughly as humanly possible. But we saw last week, Josiah couldn't transform the hearts of the people of Judah. And so, no sooner is Josiah in the grave than it's just back to business as usual in Judah. Have a look back to chapter 23, verse 32. This is speaking about Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. And the implication is that without a righteous king to restrain their evil, the people of Judah went right back to it along with Jehoahaz. So Josiah's reformation may have delayed the judgment that was coming, but it was only a delay. And so as the events of the exile are described for us, we're told in chapter 24, verse 3, surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. In order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. We've seen many times in Kings, when there is repentance, the Lord is willing to forgive. But when people refuse to turn from their sin, in the end, there are consequences. The Lord is full of mercy, compassion, and patience. But when his mercy, compassion, and patience continue to be scorned and rejected, when the innocent continue to suffer at the hands of the powerful, God's wrath does finally come. 
And so we read in chapter 24, verse 20, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Notice there, in both of the passages we've just read, the most significant consequence of sin is not loss of possessions. It's not loss of power. It's not loss of land. The most significant consequence of sin is being thrust from God's presence. Now to those who are in rebellion against God, that seems like the least important thing they could think of. What do I care about God's presence? But it's God's presence that sustains and upholds even his enemies. He's the one who gives them life and breath and everything else. To be removed from God's presence means disintegration. In a moment, we'll see what that meant for the kingdom of Judah. But ultimately, being removed from God's presence means the darkness and pain of hell. That is an eternal, never-ending disintegration. And in the New Testament, Jesus gave clear warning of that. One day he will say to those who reject his mercy and patience, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the ultimate consequence of sin. And you and I shouldn't assume it'll never come to that. Haven't we seen Judah listened for generations as God promised judgment? And they assumed it would never come to that. Until the day it did come. And then it was too late. The consequences of sin have come for Judah. And second, the glory and blessings have gone. Sprinkled through this passage, there are lots of references just shown how things have changed since the days of Solomon. Those were the glory days, and now they're gone. When Solomon was king, world leaders counted it a privilege to be Solomon's ally. Pharaoh considered Solomon to be a worthy match for his daughter in marriage. But look how this current Pharaoh treats the current king of Judah, Jehoahaz. If you look back to chapter 23, verse 33. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim son of Josiah king in place of his father Josiah and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt and there he died. Giving someone a new name is a way of showing your power over them. You can even affect their identity. It's like you hold them in your hand. 
And having someone else change your name, well, that just shows your own complete lack of power. Jehoiakim is just a puppet king. Pharaoh is pulling the strings. But the main thrust of this passage is not about Pharaoh at all. It's about the Babylonians. They are now the big world power. It used to be Assyria, but by this stage, the king of Babylon has taken the Assyrian Empire apart. And in chapters 24 and 25, we hear about three defeats for Judah at the hands of the Babylonians, followed by three deportations from Judah into exile. And each time, Judah just gets weaker and more helpless. The first defeat and deportation come in 605 BC. Chapter 24, verse 1 says, During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. That verse only mentions the defeat of Judah. But the book of Daniel tells us this was when Daniel and his three friends were taken captive to Babylon. We know the friends best by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then King Jehoiakim is replaced by his son Jehoiachin. And Judah suffers a second defeat and deportation, this time in 597 BC, chapter 24, verse 10. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. The prophet Ezekiel was one of those taken into exile during this second deportation. And notice the reference back to the glory days of Solomon. At that time, skilled workers and artisans were flooding into Israel to help build Solomon's temple and the palace and all the other great buildings that Solomon oversaw. But now, the temple is looted. The other buildings are looted for anything that's of worth in them. And the skilled workers are taken away to Babylon to work there. In fact, verse 15 says, the officials and prominent people are taken away too. Those with ability in governing and administrating. Nowadays, we'd probably call it a brain drain. And it gets worse. As we move into chapter 25, now Zedekiah is the king. He was installed by the king of Babylon, who also changed his name, so he's another puppet king. Or at least he's supposed to be, but he decides to rebel. 
So Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Jerusalem a third time and he puts the already weakened city under siege again. After 18 months of that, look what Zedekiah does in chapter 25, verse 3. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army, that's the Judean army that were in the city, the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled towards the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. As the siege gets unbearable, Zedekiah abandons his people, and he makes a run for it, along with whatever second-rate soldiers are left in the city. And notice where the Babylonians catch him. At Jericho. The scene of Israel's big victory when they first entered the promised land. That's what it was famous for. The first battle of Jericho took place about 800 years before this. It was a day of glory and success. There was a procession, there were trumpets, and at the end of it all, the city walls came crashing down before the armies of Israel. That victory signaled to everybody that Israel had arrived. These people were formidable. The people of Canaan trembled when they heard about Jericho. But now, all the glory has gone. The second battle of Jericho is about as inglorious as it gets. This time the Israelites are running away. King Zedekiah is caught and having been abandoned by his men, his sons are killed in front of him and that's the very last thing he sees before they put out his eyes and take him to Babylon in chains. In the aftermath of that, there's a third deportation in 587 BC. The Babylonians come back to Jerusalem. There's very little left for them to take. But as they leave, they burn down the temple and the royal palace and anything else that could be called an important building. And then for good measure, they break down what's left of the city walls. The glory has well and truly gone. Israel's stay in the promised land is well and truly over. The king sums it up like this. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. After 800 years, there's barely anyone left to turn out the lights. And in fact, there are no lights left to turn out. If we think it couldn't get any worse, verses 22 to 26 tell us the few people who were left behind to tend the vineyards and produce wine for the Babylonians, they fall out with each other and end up murdering the governor who has been appointed by Babylon. 
And then in a panic, verse 26 says, they fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. The book of Jeremiah tells us they dragged the prophet Jeremiah down there to Egypt with them. And so the long story has been undone. Stage by stage, it's all been reversed. The people who were delivered from Egypt under Moses have gone back to Egypt. Some of them to the actual land of Egypt and the rest of them to the new Egypt, Babylon. That is the new place of, of captivity. The people who entered the promised land at Jericho under Joshua's leadership, they have lost their last battle in the promised land at Jericho. The people who were the envy of the world during the glory days of Solomon, they've had that glory and wealth and prestige stripped away from them. The long story has been undone. But what about the promises that went with that long story? What about the promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be given a land of their own? That they'd bring blessing to all peoples on earth? What about the promise to David that a king from David's line would rule over a kingdom that would last forever? Have those promises been undone too? The people's sin has brought terrible consequences. Israel has lost its glory and its blessing. But has Israel's sin also ruined God's plans? to bring blessing to the world through these people, to bring an eternal king from these people. In other words, is this the end of the story? We'll look at the final verses of 2 Kings, verses 27 to 30 of chapter 25. Let's read those again. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Awal Marduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin regular, a regular allowance as long as he lived. If you remember back through the kings, it was Zedekiah who had his sons killed and his eyes put out. Jehoiachin had surrendered years before that. He was just 18 years old when he went into exile. So by my calculations, that makes him 55 years old at this point. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. Awel Marduk is the new king of Babylon. And verse 27 says, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Literally, it says, he lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. That's an unusual way to put it. It's not just saying he let Jehoiachin out of his cell. There's a sense of raising his status from an anonymous prisoner to someone who's favored by the king. 
And in fact, that's what happens. Owl Marduk doesn't just lift up, he doesn't lift up the heads of the other exiled kings in Babylon. And there were plenty of those other kings. The Babylonian empire was big. Little Judah was just one of the lands Babylon conquered. But out of all of them, Jehoiachin receives kind words from the king. He's given a seat of honor and fine clothes. He eats at the king's table and he's provided for by the king. In fact, next time you're in Berlin, you can go and have a look at Jehoiachin's ration book. It's been discovered by archaeologists and it's on display in a museum there. There it is on a tablet. And that ration book includes regular provision, not only for Jehoiachin, but for his five sons as well. Isn't that just a little bit interesting? That after this record we've just read of all Judah's achievements and glory and success being systematically undone, that at the end of all that, we have this one little hint that maybe God's plans aren't done. Here in Babylon, for no obvious reason, the king of Babylon singles out this non-celebrity prisoner from a pokey little kingdom, a man who just happens to be a descendant of King David. And the king of Babylon provides for not just Jehoiachin, but Jehoiachin's sons as well. And when we get to the first page of the New Testament, Matthew tells us this. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, that's a Greek form of the name Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. The overall title for this series on kings has been there is a higher throne. And surely, if anything shows that to be true, it's this little genealogy at the start of the New Testament. Only the king of kings could preserve his promises through the long history of Israel's disobedience, through the disaster they made of all God's good gifts to them, even through the years of exile in Babylon. Thank goodness the God of the Bible is a stubborn God. He's a majestically stubborn God. He's stubborn enough to show himself faithful even when he didn't have a faithful people to work with. As we read on in the New Testament, we find out Jesus the Messiah came 
to take the long story of Israel's history and fulfill it in a much more glorious and lasting way. Jesus came to lead a new exodus, not from Egypt or Babylon, but out of slavery to sin. He came to lead his people into a new promised land, not in Canaan, but in a restored heaven and earth. And Jesus came to reign at his Father's side over an everlasting, incorruptible, an incomparably glorious kingdom. The long story of Israel's history was undone in the end. But the long story of God's faithfulness is still going on. And if Jesus is your king, then you're part of the story. And your circumstances are too. Even the things that perplex you. Even in those things, God is working out the long story of his faithfulness. He's working for your good and his glory. And one day you'll see that. You'll see that your circumstances cannot defeat God's faithfulness. And if we think about our own response to all this, let's ask ourselves, why would we live for any other dream? Why would we settle for any other ambition than to spend our lives seeking and serving this stubbornly faithful God? Worshiping his risen, returning son. If we have come to Christ in repentance, then Almighty God has lifted up our heads from the shame of our sin. He's given us new, clean robes to wear, and He welcomes us to His table forever. And so let's praise Him together as we sing, There is a higher throne.